well, we read the whole <coughs> chapter and that was intentional. But what I thought might be helpful before we get into the actual 22 verses of chapter one is to understand what is the context of this. We did this a little bit last week. But what I wanna do is I never wanna presume that we understand fully Old Testament history. So much of our time as the New Covenant Church is spent in the New Testament, and I don't think that that's wrong or out of proportion. Nevertheless, when we go to the Old Testament, sometimes we just look at them as individual stories and episodes, and we don't see the bigger picture. So what I just wanna give us is a background of the exile, because that's what's happening. We didn't read anything Jewish in those 22 verses. We didn't read anything, certainly Christian. We don't know anything about even Esther or Mordecai yet. But nevertheless, it's recorded in scripture for us to get a background. So what I wanna do is give us a little bit of a history in the promised land real quick. So the Bible starts out, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Next book is Joshua. Joshua brings the people of God into the promised land. That's what happens in that book. Then they settle into what was called Canaan then and becomes called Israel even up to now. Then you have the book of Judges next, all the way to the book of 2 Kings, 490 years of unfaithfulness in the land. That's what's recorded. Judges to 2 Kings, 490 years of sinfulness, of idolatry. The, the kingdom splits. You've ever heard about the kingdom becoming divided and you don't understand what, what happens after Solomon dies. So it's Saul, David, Solomon, third king. His son splits the kingdom. 10 tribes go north. That's where the Samaritans are coming from when we get to like the woman at the well in John chapter four, when she says, your ancestors say we worship down south. My ancestors say we worship up north. That's what that's from. That's a result of the kingdom splitting right after Solomon. So then after that, you just have a, a, um, a Rolodex of kings in the book of first and second kings of the northern kings and the southern kings. Northern kings are all bad, all of them. Southern kings have a few bright lights, and that's where Jerusalem is, and that's where Judah and Benjamin are. So Judah is David's tribe, and the Messiah has to come from them. So we can lose the, the northern kings. We can't lose the lineage of the southern kings. We can't. Otherwise, we lose Christ. So what happened in those 490 years was just rampant idolatry, wanting to look like all the other nations around them, and they just kind of depended upon externals. So they were like, well, we have the temple and we have uh, priests and we have, for a time they had the scroll of the Old Testament, but then they eventually lost it until it's found in Josiah's reign. But it was just kind of our lineage. We know our history and that's enough for us to be right with God. But of course it wasn't. So then exiles happened. God promises that if you do not obey my commandments in that land, you will be removed. And then he fills out that promise. So the northern kingdom gets exiled. Second Kings 17, verse 19. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel, the northern kingdom, had introduced. So when you see in this context between Judges and Second Kings, Judah and Israel, it's the same people group. Israel's the northern kingdom. Judah's the southern kingdom, just for frame of reference. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Now, when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. 
They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So Northern Kingdom, those 10 tribes, they're gone. They're out of the land. Now, Judah is not far behind them. A prophecy comes in 2 Kings 20, verse 16. Then, the, then Isaiah, the prophet, said to Hezekiah, the king, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Did you hear eunuchs being read about in chapter one of Esther? That's where we're coming to. So that's prophesied, and then it happens, 2 Kings 25, verse 8. In the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of his bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord, that's the temple, and the king's house, that's the palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And the army of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, same name, it's like Americans in the United States, like it's two names, same place, who were the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. So now they're all out. Three waves, two kingdoms, they're all out of the kingdom. Life in exile, that's where Esther lives. Now, when you think of life in exile, the most famous ones you're gonna think of are Daniel. Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and, and uh, Hanani, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, other, their pagan names. Kings that were from the exile, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes. If you have an NIV, when I was reading Ahasuerus, it read Xerxes. That's his Greek name, Ahasuerus, is his Persian name. So it's the same guy. Those are these kings that are out there. So the religious customs or the religions and the customs of the conquered people by these outsiders, Babylonians, then it gets handed over to the Persians or stolen from the Persians, basically. They tolerated the religions and the customs of the people they conquered to an extent. And many Jews, they were conscripted into various roles or duties or courts or harems inside those pagan kingdoms. Right, Daniel and his three friends, Daniel chapter one, they're not gonna eat the food that the king wants them to eat because they've been brought into the court. They're the best and the brightest. They're the Harvard kids from Israel, brought them in, you're gonna work for us now and we're gonna indoctrinate you into our ways. So that's happening in some level. And some, there's some very real moments while they're exiled of forced integration. You will be like us. You will bow the knee to the empire. It's directly contrary to, to God's commands upon entering Canaan was to, was to integrate with the people. And the same is true when you're out of the kingdom. You're not to integrate with their customs, their religions, and their faith. Leviticus explains why in Leviticus 18, 26, God speaking to his people before they go in the land, says, but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations that those who are not Israel do, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Don't do that, verse 28, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. 
For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people, meaning the people of God. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Isn't that vivid imagery of the land vomiting you out? And that's what happened. That's what we're living in. That's what Esther and Mordecai know has happened to their people. We've been vomited out because we did not keep God's law. Now, there were godly people amongst those who were exiled. We know that from, from Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, Esther, Mordecai, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the others along them. There were faithful people who strove for faithfulness even in the midst of their oppressors. And we have a song, we have a, a piece of poetry of what it was like to live in Babylon as an exile. It's Psalm 137. Psalm 137 says this, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They're, they're out of Zion, that's Jerusalem, that's the promised land, that's where they were supposed to be. Now they're by the waters of Babylon, the big beautiful rivers, the Euphrates, and they're weeping because they remember Jerusalem, they remember Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. On the banks of those beautiful, famous rivers in Mesopotamia, we hung up our musical instruments, we sing no more. We have nothing to sing about. For there, our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Yeah, you guys sing. You're all about that, right? Your God is conquering. He's going to take care of you. Sing it now. Sing it now while you're here and we're in charge. They're being mocked. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we do this? But they know who God is. Verse five, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set, my, set Jerusalem above my highest joy, we're not gonna forget. God has promised to his people. Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Joel, all those men. And then you lump in Esther and Mordecai or the faithful who were singing sadly by the waters of Babylon. Now, the context here with Esther and Mordecai the empire's changed hands from Babylon to Persia. Remember when Daniel is in uh, the, the big palace and Belshazzar's throwing that big party and then the hand appears and writes on the wall, many, many tekel. And he's, what's that it say? He says, like, you've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom's gonna be taken from you tonight. And who are the ones that are coming and taking it? The Medes and the Persians. So that shifts in Daniel and now that's what Esther's living under. The Persians now are in charge. They still have to, these two, Esther and Mordecai, live in an oppressive and pagan culture. Their God is hated, their God is mocked, and so are they. They're always at the whim of the new king, the new emperor. Whatever he wants to do, that's what it is. They appreciate the calm when it's there, but it's never a given, it's never a right. I mean, think about it. if you're looking for a, a, um, a context, we could look at a lot of nations, but think about China. China, as the... The, uh, the dictator, Xi Jinping, uh, the church, their life ebbs and flows on his whims. When he feels ready to go after them, he just does, and he can. 
cut down all the crosses off their buildings, force their landlords to kick them out if they're renting. I mean, they do whatever they want, but then sometimes he just backs off and they're okay and they can kind of do what they want. Then other times he just says, I'm gonna arrest this one guy just because. Just totally at the whim of the dictator. That's what Esther and Mordecai live under right now. So now with that background in mind, let's review what we read, walk through the text and we'll draw some principles from it. So verses one through nine, are the king's and the queen's banquets. The first pair of banquets, remember there's three pairs of banquets. This is the first one. This literary device is beginning the conflict. So you see now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. India to Ethiopia. Now what that means in modern geography is the top of Sudan in Africa, up through Egypt, over then and across Israel, Jordan, Syria, then over Iraq, Iran, all the way through Pakistan to right where the Indus River flows out. So barely touching India, but Pakistan was a part of India at the time. That's a massive swath of geography that he's the emperor over. And in those days, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Susa is in modern day Iran. So it's, uh, and the citadel is just a fortified palace that's there. There was four different capital cities that this king had, the Persian empire had. They would uh, winter in some of them. This is the one that he's at right now. So he throws this big lavish feast, 180 days, six months of, of uh, we're gonna party for these six months. Likely because they're preparing to go to war against the Greeks. That's why they have all the, the soldiers and all of the generals there. And then you're supposed to see the opulence. It's in the garden of the king's palace, verse 5. White cotton curtains, verse 6, and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, purple silver rods, marble pillars, couches of gold and silver, mosaic pavement, with marble, mother of pearl, precious stones, drinking out of gold cups, and then you have to make a law. This is when you know you're in a full dictatorship, when there's a rule for the party. In verse eight, he says, drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. Do whatever you want. That's because I'm allowing you to do whatever you want. He's the emperor. He's in charge. You're supposed to see opulence, decadence, ostentatious, just elitist realities here, that they're feasting for six months and people in that kingdom are starving. They're starving to death. This is a massive, massive portion of geography. And what is it? Just follow your desires. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. These are not godly men. These are not reserved men or moral men of any kind. These are savage warlords. This is pure hedonism. Then you have the conflict come. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, meaning he's drunk, he sends his eunuchs, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. And this, that this, the king became enraged, his anger burned within him. So he could control 127 provinces, but he couldn't control his wife nor his own anger. 
You're supposed to see, you're supposed to begin to see now that the powers that we think are almighty in our lives are actually just regular, simple, and somewhat pathetic people. He throws, he, he, he demands that Vashti come to this thing. Now, why she refused to come is a matter of debate. We don't have it in the book of Esther. The rabbis and the Jewish tradition, uh, they have recorded for centuries that it was because he was wanting her to come wearing her crown and nothing else. Going on here, you have this massive drunken party and he wants her to come in front of all his drunken generals and officials. And is it just because, hey guys, my wife's just real pretty. Just take a peek. No, I mean, these, are, these are pagans. So she's refusing probably for her own safety or she's refusing because she's just, she's just done. This is kind of a, a women's lib movement of the day. She's not gonna listen to her husband anymore. Either way, it doesn't matter because it's not recorded. The point is, why did she refuse the providence of God? Esther has got to get in the chair and he's gonna get her in the chair because this can't be the first time that, that the king has treated his wife like an object. Can't be the first time that he has treated her rudely or as somehow just, just an, a picture just a thing. This can't be the first time. So why now? Why is her cup filled up now and now I'm done? Now she doesn't care about her life or her well-being because God will have his people where he wants them when he wants them there. We'll see that. But then you have, so remember we talked about last week that there's a bit of comedy, the fear of the ripple effect. That's what's coming in verses 13 through 18. This has got to be ridiculous, right? The king said to the wise men, when, when you're the king of an empire that spans thousands and thousands of miles and people, and your wife says, I'm not coming to your party, do you call in your cabinet and say, guys, what are we gonna do? My wife didn't do what I wanted. This is, bro, this is your house. Take care of your business. Why are you bringing in all these, these officials? And he brings them all in and lists them out. And this is what she can't do. We have a problem here. The, the Verse 17, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. If they hear this, there will be contempt and wrath and plenty, verse 18 says. Now, remember, what's the context of all of this? Lavish, flowing wine. Does this sound like the reasoning of a bunch of drunk idiots? Yes, you're supposed to see this. Like, wait a minute, what? Something that happened in, the, in just the, the, the private room of the elite officials, the wife said no. Now we're afraid that there's gonna be a revolt. Now you're afraid? You guys are savage warlords. You guys are, are murderous, bloodthirsty, conquering maniacs, and you're afraid of one woman? And then what she's gonna do to other women? I mean, are we, re is that really what's happening? This has got to be a bit of just drunken foolishness and Mamukin's leading the whole thing. He's like, hey, we got a big deal here, boss. Other ladies are gonna get mad and we can't have that. that that's what he's after. Why didn't the king just kill Vashti? Just, just flex your muscles right there. Why does he go, hey guys, what do we do? 
I mean, this is supposed to show impotence and foolishness that he's the king of this massive empire, 127 provinces, but he can't even deal with his own marriage? So then, what do they do? We're going to go ahead and legislate marital relationships. Let's write a rule, 19 through 22. He gets rid of Vashti, and he's going to make a decree, proclaim it throughout everything. Nobody can know, says the king, how weak I am. So let's tell everybody through the Pony Express, throughout the whole empire, you're so worried about it, but then you went and told everybody, hey, by the way, everybody from Sudan, Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, you have to make sure if you're a woman, you obey your husband. Why? Because my wife didn't obey me, and I said, that stinks, and she's out of here now. I mean, that's, that's what we're looking at. You're supposed to see the foolishness of this that this guy is, is, is impotent. If you're the empire of the greatest, you're the emperor of the greatest empire in the world, you own the world and you can't control your wife, what does Joe Camelherder have any hope of doing with his wife? He's got nothing compared to you. I mean, this is absurd. If he wanted to save face, why didn't one of his officials just come and say, hey, you know what, King, why don't we just not? That she did this. I think, I don't think that'll solve it. But no, he blasted out. Why? Providence. Esther has got to get in the queen role. There has got to be. These men have said, we got to replace Vashti with someone better. So there's got to be an empire-wide beauty contest. That's got to happen. And Esther's got to be the most beautiful woman. And so God ordered all these events to get her here. A rebellious queen, a king with hurt feelings, self-important legislators who are ready to just make laws on a whim, all employed by God sovereignly to protect his people and ultimately provide a savior. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So we can see that there. Now, what we have to do is prepare, because what this opening chapter is supposed to do is just in the, in the way that it's written as a novella, a small novel, it's got to set the scene for the tension. How do we get to where the main story's got to get? And how does it get there? It gets there through broken, wicked government. That's how it gets there. The theological bridge that we bring from Esther is to government, the people of God find themselves under this kind of incompetent yet massively powerful government. That's where they are. That's where they found themselves. How was the Christian supposed to relate to government before that? What is God's intended role for government? So we read Romans 13, one through the whole chapter, but I want to read verses one through seven again so that it's in our brains so that we can see this. What we're going to do is we're going to build the case from three proof texts, God's intended plan for government in the abstract. Romans 13, one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Every person means every person. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant. 
Did you hear that? Government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. That one stings. Taxes are in here. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Three things from that paragraph. God ordains all government, verses one through two. That's, that's non-negotiable. That's absolutely true. Second thing, government is to reward good and punish evil in verses three through five. That's their job. That's what God intends them to do. Now, third thing is taxes for basic infrastructure are biblical, verses six through seven. Jesus backs that up. Our, third, our second text, Matthew 22, 15. And the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. They're lying. You do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness in the inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard of it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So for our purposes here, what we see is Jesus affirms the government's lawful existence by affirming taxation, saying that it belongs to Caesar. Now he knows that everything is God's, but this rightfully does belong to Caesar in our sphere. So he's affirming the necessity of a government and establishing and maintaining infrastructure. Now here's our third proof text. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor commanded there to submit to government as unto God. It says, fear God and then honor the emperor. So the government, again, we see here is supposed to punish evil and reward good. Now, all of those concepts, though they be New Testament, are still true in Esther's context in Persia. And if all of it's true, then what do we do about wicked government? That's what's here. They are not rewarding good and punishing evil. They are punishing good and rewarding evil. What do we do about that? We have plenty of Old Testament examples of wicked government. Genesis and Exodus, the pharaohs of Egypt. The book of Judges, the wicked Israelite rulers and the Gentile kings that oppress them. First and second Samuel, you have Saul and Absalom, wicked rulers, first and second Kings and Chronicles, Ahab, Manasseh, and just anybody else's name who isn't Hezekiah or Josiah or Asa or Uzziah. Everybody else is terrible, awful, oppressive leaders. 
And in the post-exilic world, like the one we're living in right now, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, Ahasuerus, and then Artaxerxes. On down the list. New Testament, we have examples. Rome, the Caesars, Pharisees, and Sadducees, who were lower level. So then what do we do with wicked government? If government's supposed to be this, and it's often not, then what do we do? Well, first we need to embrace that wicked government, historically and biblically, is the norm. That's usually what it is. The New Testament warns us of this all the time, 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He's the God of this world blinding the minds of the unbelievers who is ruling all of the countries of the world. Unbelievers, blinded minded. That's who they are. And remember, that same God of this world, little g, meaning Satan, didn't he offer Jesus all the kingdoms? Remember that? Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. That's not a real offer or a real temptation if Satan can't actually do that. If he can't actually give him authority over all the kingdoms, then, this is, then Matthew 4 is just pageantry. It's silliness. Of course, Jesus is gonna say no. But if Satan can actually give it to him, because he actually owns them, then that's a much bigger deal that we have to recognize the wickedness of governments is always there. And the New Testament is full of admonitions concerning wicked government. Matthew 10, 17, Jesus says, beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. James 2, verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Acts 16, you see it happen in real life. Not in just a principle, but in, in practice. Acts 16, 19 in the city of Philippi, when her owners, this previously demon-possessed woman, saw that their hope of gain was lost because they were using her to make money, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they bought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd said, wait a minute, this doesn't seem very fair. We should give them a hearing. Well, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates said, wait a minute, guys, let's think rationally about this. No, the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into stocks. What was their accusation? They're Jews, they're the people of God. They're disturbing our city. Why? Because they have customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept, meaning there's only one God that they worship. False. That's what it is. So throughout global history, wicked government is the norm. I want to think about the uniqueness of Europe and America from about 1650 in America and 1690 in Europe to have religious freedom. I mean, the wicked governments were wicked in lots of other ways. But since then, we've had religious freedom. But statistically, in 2019, 
governments of 80% of the world, 80% of the world in 2019, governments harassed religious groups on some level from all the way from executions to just, you can't meet in here, you can't do that, you can't be on these days. 80% of the world. So Esther and Mordecai, their world is not that far removed from the experience of many Christians today of having a wicked government or from what we could have here pretty soon. Their government wasn't, or their government was completely content to ignore them until it wasn't. We're gonna see Haman rise up in the book of Esther just out of nowhere. And because he hates one guy, he wants to kill everybody that he's ever related to and that he associates with just out of nowhere. The government was content to ignore them, didn't even know the Jews existed until suddenly one guy gets in power and hates them. And that's it. Because there's a war, remember Genesis 3.15, there's a war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There's a war. Remember, what did, what did God say? I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. Satan's seed, Satan's lineage is fighting with the lineage of the people of God all throughout history. It still rages today. Satan will never leave Christ's church alone until he is forced to by Christ. So their government in Esther overreached its God-ordained bounds by the drop of a hat. I mean, not even, we're not even getting into the realm of Esther being the queen and then the edict of genocide against the Jews. They just overreached their bounds and said, this is how you have to conduct yourself in your family. God has three ordained circles of authority, family, church, government, and they don't overlap. You can't order, the, and the church speaks to both of them, but doesn't speak into what you have to do and how you have to live precisely. And the government saying, this is how you have to live in your family is what's happening here in the book of Esther already showing their wickedness. We, they saw it then, we've seen it now. The, in every country that tries to take over, what do they do? They have to go to the government schools and they have to be taught the government's ideologies. That's what they do. That's what Russia does. Russia said, uh, or Stalin famously said, that as long as the babushkas exist, we will never overtake this whole land. Babushka is Russia for mother or grandmother because grandma's telling you the right things and the truth. And if she still in, has influence, then we don't have any hope. We've got to get them away from their families. That's John Dewey with the government schools, even in our country. Get them away from their families so the government does make rules in those, along those lines. I mean, think about the way marriage has been redefined even in our own country. No fault divorce, just do whatever you want. Common law marriage, same sex marriage. We're, we're gonna see polygamy be codified within the next 20 years, there's no doubt. We live in this overstep of government. So what do we do? How do we live in a society with a wicked government? Mordecai and Esther are certainly gonna be great examples for us. But I think what we could be helped by as we lean into, as we build up to chapter two with Esther coming on the scene is the concept of pilgrimage. Now it's no secret that I love the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, but there's a reason why that book has been in print since the middle of the 1600s and never gone out of print. We are Christ's called out people. John 15, 19, if you were of the world, Jesus speaking to his disciples, the world would love you at its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. 
Therefore, the world hates you. Titus 2, 13 through 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Navigating life under a wicked government, because we know that God ordains all of them. Navigating life under wicked government as the people of God begins with knowing who you are. And if you have repented of your sins, and trusted in Christ, then you are Christ's. You are Christ's. You are of the seed of the woman that will not be overtaken by the seed of the serpent. That's who you are. First and foremost, you are his and no one else's. Christ chose you out of the world. Christ purified and possesses you. And Christ made you a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. We have dual citizenship, but one reigns supreme over the other. We have citizenship here, a citizenship in heaven, but the one reigns supreme over the other, just like all Californians who move to Texas. Your Texas citizenship reigns supreme over your one from the People's Republic. And like Esther and Mordecai and etc., all those, we live under wicked government first knowing that we are Christ's, that we are his, that we are a peculiar people. And then what do we do though? How do we interact with our culture? What do we, what do we do? See, as dual citizens living physically under wicked government for now, what do we do? We interact with it. Well, some people say we got to redeem the culture. Where do you get that? They get it from Jeremiah 29, 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. So they're exiles. Seek the welfare of that city. Okay, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So what, is that God saying, help pagans flourish as much as you can? Is that what he's saying? I don't think it's, they're supposed to, we're supposed to help them flourish in ungodliness. What does that mean? That corporate entities are to be turned around? That we got to go after big groups and big influential strongholds by our winsomeness and our cultural savvy? What is God's welfare for a pagan government and a pagan society? See, often the heart behind of wanting to redeem the culture too often is I just want peace with the culture. I just want them to like me. And if I, if I can get them to like me, maybe they'll like Jesus. But that's not how Jesus talks about it. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to bring peace on earth. But we sing that every Christmas, Jesus. Well, maybe we should think about the songs we sing. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace. Wow, that's okay. I'll throw that song out. Uh, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's not very hard to do. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
What is Jesus after? He's not after wholesale turning of institutions. It's individuals. What does he say? I'm going to set father against son, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, individual people. Individual people is who Jesus is after. What all unbelievers need is Christ and only we have been sent to them to give him. That's what we're to do. We focus on the proclamation of the gospel and the, pro the uh, propagation of the gospel community, the church. That will redeem the culture. Think about what, what turns a culture, a bunch of turned people. What makes a whole nation repent? A bunch of repentant people. You can shut down wickedness just by the gospel. Ephesians gives us, well, the Ephesian ground gives us a case study in the book of Acts. The city of Ephesus. Listen to what happened. Verse 23. And at that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis is a, a pagan deity and, and her temple in Ephesus was one of the, the ancient wonders of the world. Brought no little business to the craftsmen, meaning brings a lot of business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, our city, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Wait a minute, Paul says, Paul, did Paul come in saying, I'm going to go and redeem the silversmith trade? Did Paul say, I'm going to go in and redeem the marketplace of Ephesus? If I could just get in there as a businessman and show them better ethics and better practices, they'll like me and then I could talk to them about Jesus. No, he just said, repent and believe the gospel. And then they are believing the gospel. And then the silversmiths wake up one day and say, we're about to go broke. Nobody's buying our tchotchkes anymore because nobody believes this anymore. So you shut it down capitalistically just by proclaiming the gospel. That redeems the culture. So what we need is eyes up and not eyes down. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. Remember when Jesus proclaims to Peter and the disciples that he's gonna be crucified? Peter says, no, that's never going to happen. Jesus responds in verse 23 of Matthew 16. He turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Put your eyes up, not down. Matthew 6, 19, we've heard this before. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, their heart will be also. Politics, elections coming up, laws, norms, mores will always disappoint us. Culture always disappoints us. Looking for hope or help there is foolish. That's the equivalent of sitting down, eating donuts, weighing yourself the next day, being heavier and going, man, all right, I'm going to eat more tomorrow. See, we're going to get there. I'm going to get skinny. 
I mean, I don't know what the deal is, but we got to eat more donuts. I know that's right. This, this is foolishness. We have a higher and, and farther hopes than here and now. We invest ourselves in accounts that have eternal dividends. What you do doesn't matter unless you're a preacher. Not at all. What it means is that invest in eternity, even with your job, with, with being at home with your kids, with your neighborhood, with your little league and your ballet and your band and all of those things. Eternal dividends is the accounts that we're after. Because we know that this world is passing away, 1 John 2, 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, along with everything that it says, get in here and get in about this. That's going away too. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And here's a passage that we don't normally ever talk about, but we should. It just makes it clear. 2 Peter 3, 10 and following. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We want that day to come. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, Christ's promise, we are waiting and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're waiting for. So we don't belong here, and we know that here is temporary. Have you ever thought about why it became evangelical vernacular to call it your walk with Christ? How's your walk going? You're walking with Christ? It comes from Colossians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Why is it called a walk? Because we are walking through. We're passing through like pilgrims. Like 1 Peter 2.11 says, strangers. as pilgrims. See, the full title of Bunyan's famous book from the 1600s of the Pilgrim's Progress is actually this. Puritans gave crazy long names. The Pilgrim's Progress, from this world to that which is to come, delivered under the similitude of a dream, wherein discovered, where is discovered the manner of his setting out, his dangerous journey, and the safe arrival at the desired country. It's not as snappy as the Pilgrim's Progress, but nevertheless, that's the full title of it. So Esther and Mordecai, they both live, as we shall see, unafraid of what their wicked rulers might do to them. We're gonna see Esther in particular mature as a believer, but she gets to the place where she says, I don't care about this life. I don't care about this government, even though she's next to the most powerful man in the world. I am going to obey God rather than men. That's what she's after. Even if they're killed, all that does to Esther and Mordecai, who both face down death a couple of times, even if they're killed, all that does is shorten their journey to the desired destination. That's the image in the first book of Pilgrim's Progress. His friend, Christian's friend, is named Faithful. And he and Faithful both walk into Vanity Fair, which is supposed to be this, this picture of just outright egregious worldliness. Everything that you want to do, any vice you want to participate in, any sin you want to be a part of, and it mentions all the different countries. You can get every, there's a street for every country that you could want to do with that kind of thing in, and they don't, and they resist. They just try to walk through, and then they just get attacked. Christian gets let go, and Faithful gets executed in Vanity Fair. And when Christian's getting that explained to him, 
by evangelists, it's that he, all he says is his journey, his journey got shortened. He got go straight to heaven without having to follow the rest of the path that Christian walked. So we do live in a unique world. And we, you, we do live, and I, this is the providence of God. I'm talking about a book about providence. I didn't plan or time this. You know that because we just put, backed up off of John to have this week happen right on election day. But uh, this is where we think. I mean, just think about this. Give me some time period. Abraham, Old Testament Genesis, Abraham. He dies in chapter 25 of Genesis. He lives to be 175 years old. So that's this much of your biblical history. How old is America? 233 years. So in the snapshot of time, this concept of voting, it's a, and the Democratic Republic is so young, it's almost historically negligible. We, we, nobody's, nobody votes in any of these books. And then you think about through history prior to 1789 when the Constitution is ratified and put into place. Who's really voting before that besides England? Nobody. This crazy thing that happens to us every four years, sometimes every two years, where we go nuts thinking of control. And what we're going to do is make it happen. No, you vote like Christ would vote, but here's the fact that we always have to, almost always, in every single layer of government, you're almost always just choosing between Joseph's Pharaoh or Moses' Pharaoh. That's it. Joseph's Pharaoh kind of listens to Joseph, but he's still a rank pagan. Moses' Pharaoh doesn't listen to Moses at all and hates him. You're usually just choosing between one of those two. I'd prefer to have Joseph's Pharaoh, better deal. But often we get stuck with Moses' Pharaoh under the sovereign rule of God. So what we learn from Esther chapter one is that evil men can and do get into government. And when they do, they enact wicked laws and they allow for wicked freedoms. But we, as the people bought by the blood of Christ, know that our only task is to be faithful. Faithful, no matter the cost, because this is not our home anyways. We belong to Christ. We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, and we long for a banquet. You think about the theme of banqueting. The book opens up. Esther opens up at a banquet, but there's a banquet coming with a better king, and we are the bride, and our king doesn't want us to parade us around as some kind of sexual object to be leered at and used no, the banqueting table, his banner over us is love at that table. Song of Solomon 2, verse 4, he brought me into the banqueting house. Not like Ahasuerus brought in Vashti. He brought me in in a different way. His banner over me was love, not spite, not dominance, love. That's the king that we're longing for. And it's his government we cannot wait to be under. Father in heaven, we thank you for Esther chapter one. We thank you for letting us see and, and describing in such detail, lending such credence to the account, the inerrancy of the word by naming two separate groups of eunuchs, listing out the region and the provinces and the, the opulence of the feasts and the names and places and all of these things that we can see your hand 
in a time period that we will never know anything really about. You were there and you were sovereignly reigning and controlling those thousands of people and those particular two clashing individuals of Vashti and the king. You ruled over them to bring about your good, to save your people, to preserve the lineage for your savior of whom we owe everything to. So Father, we thank you, we marvel at this. And we ask, particularly now, and particularly in our state of Texas, where it's very easy to get our eyes cast very downward and to fight and scrap for some kind of utopia here where we don't want to see evil reign. We pray that all of our governing officials would reward good and punish evil in every single level. We ask for that. But Lord, we know that that doesn't often happen. And that if that does happen, we know that it is your will and we know that we are not alone. In fact, we are in the vast majority of your people from the foundation of the world that have lived under governments that hated you and hated your people without reason. Or throughout history, your people have always been ideal citizens, whether it's the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, Babylonian Empire, Western Europe, continent of Africa, or the United States. They've always been the best of citizens, respecting their neighbor, following the laws, paying taxes, but yet we are the most hated. May we, may we know that, may we see that. May we know what it will cost to stand when everybody else bows, but may we not take up the sword like Peter. May we be wise in how we resist and how we refuse to bow the knee. May we have the concept of a holy pilgrimage through this uh, land in our minds that we can come to the celestial city, to the forever Zion, to the new heavens and the new earth. May we sing like those saints by the waters of Babylon that we will never forget Jerusalem. And when we say that, we're talking about the new Jerusalem, the Revelation 22 Jerusalem. May we never forget that, though we're mocked and scorned here. May we never forget. Increase our faith. And may we always remember the cost that Christ paid for our sins to own us, to love us, to possess us, to purify us, to call us out and to carry us home. Because those last words of his great commission and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. We need those words and we cling to those words. Come what may on election day, we cling to those words. Father, thank you for Christ and it's in his name we pray, amen.